It's Divas That Care Radio. Stories, strategies, and ideas to inspire positive change. Welcome to Divas That Care, a network of women committed to making our world a better place for everyone. This is a global movement for women, by women, engaged in a collaborative effort to create a better world for future generations. To find out more about the movement, visit divasthatcare.com after the show. Right now, though, stay tuned for another jolt of inspiration. We all seem to have that inner critic inside our heads. I have a committee, the Itty Bitty City Committee. You know what I mean, that nagging voice, or voices in my case, that knocks us down and drags us down the road of self-sabotage and self-neglect. A strong, positive sense of self-esteem is your first step to anything you wish to accomplish. Discover who you truly are, that gorgeous, talented, fabulous woman who deserves recognition and unconditional love. You know the most beautiful thing any woman can wear is confidence. Here on Confidence in Bloom with the Divas That Care Network, I, Tina Spolatini, speak with women living in their own self-confidence about who they truly are, how they found themselves, and how they care for themselves. Longtime public school teacher, award-winning coach, and parent educator, and author of The Parenting as a Second Language, Elizabeth Stitt found her joyful parenting coaching to give parents the skills they need to create the happy and harmonious homes they desire and deserve. Because parenting is a skill that can be taught, learned, and practiced, Elizabeth believes 100% that every parent can work to create the connected relationships with kids that get their cooperation and allow kids to thrive. Through her talks, workshops, and webinars, Elizabeth brings her warmth and wisdom to parents all over the world. Welcome, Elizabeth. Elizabeth? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was on mute. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, I'm glad you joined. Thank you for coming in today. My pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, Sure, absolutely. I am a mother of three young adults in their late 20s. I taught mostly middle school for 25 years. And I switched to parenting coaching because I saw a big shift first in my students and then in the parents of my students. And my last three years at school, I was part-time in the classroom and part-time doing a job called outreach teacher, which is kind of like being the school counselor. But it really gave me the opportunity to talk to parents in a slow, open agenda kind of way. I mean, mostly we talk to parents in either something's wrong with your kid or it's parent-teacher conferences and I have to get through all this information really quickly. But being the outreach teacher, parents would just come and, you know, sit down with a concern. And I might spend 30, 40, even 45 minutes with them just listening to and hearing their concerns. And that made me realize how much anxiety and overwhelm and guilt uh, parents were feeling. And that instead of, I mean, parenting it's never going to be easy, right? Parenting is always going to be demanding. But it doesn't have to be, like, so sucking hard. And that's really what the parents coming to me were were showing. And so 
I just kept thinking, it doesn't have to be this hard. Like, the, you know, parenting is a skill, right? I said that before, but it's such an important idea. We used to learn it in social groups, right, in community groups and from our neighborhood because we ourselves were not working so hard and we were socializing more. Like we spent more time watching the kids go up and down on their bikes on the street and that gave us the opportunity to say to a neighbor, like, oh, God, it took me two hours to get that kid to bed last night. I'm going to kill that kid. And for another parent to either empathize or to say, um, oh, yeah, like we had that too. One idea that helped me was X, Y, or Z. And now I have one idea to try. Today, parents don't talk to their neighbor, and if they do, they only say the good things because we're supposed to be able to parent perfectly. And so instead, a parent sits down at the computer and 28 clicks later has a bunch of conflicting opinions about how to handle bedtime. So instead of feeling more confident and like, I've got this, and oh, I could do that one idea, the parent it either feels so overwhelmed that they don't change anything and they don't take any action, or they try an action, but they kind of sabotage themselves with it because they're not confident that they've made the right choice among all the different things that they clicked on. And so their body language and their, their voice and their face and even their willingness to see it through for a couple of weeks, even if it's not going well initially, all get wobbly. Like they, they don't have that clear, this is my plan, I'm going to do it, I'm the mom, it's okay if you're unhappy with it right now, uh, approach to things. And so as a result, they don't see the success that they might otherwise. Wow. So parenting is not about um, necessarily, well, I mean, it is, but it's not just about teaching the kids right from wrong anymore. There's a, so much more to it than there used to be. Am I right? Yes, and I would say that I would say that in the past, yes, okay. I think maybe what you're alluding to is that the expectations of parents was that we keep our kids reasonably blood-free, that we produce reasonably decent human beings who, as you say, know right from wrong and help little old ladies across the, the sidewalk, and that they fulfill their potential. That, you know, that, you know, whatever that it may be for who we are in our town. That, that may be that, you know, we expect you to go to a factory job. It may be that you're going to go to state college. And, you know, if mom and dad went to Harvard, probably they do expect their kids to go to Harvard. But today what we have is we expect our kids, we expect our job as parents to be not only to keep our kid alive, but to have them be excelling and thriving at all possible levels, at all possible times, at all possible ages and stages, which is an enormous burden. Oh, my goodness, it's an enormous burden, right? So 
that's why you know, so who who yeah. who did that like who's who's put that pressure on today's parents did we do that to ourselves or is it like the generation before us okay so when did that start answer. happening yeah so and this is research that uh Julie Wiscott Haynes did uh she published her book how to raise an adult in 2015 and She's sort of the first person who really kind of pulled together this research from, from a variety of places and articulated it really well. And she points to two pivotal events in the 1980s, mid-80s. One was an educational report that came out that was called A Nation at Risk that painted a picture, which in some ways has come true today, but then not 100%. Painted a picture of all the middle management jobs going to Asia and there being a very split society. So the people being at the top, being, being the ones who are going to have all the money and power and choice, and the people at the bottom being in the service jobs and everybody's standard of living going down from what their parents have experienced. A lot of that is true. So it was, it was kind of a real fear, but it really gripped parents. And so what it meant was that the parent who was comfortable, or the parent who had been able to buy a house and have barbecues on Saturday night and play baseball in the spring and, you know, be the foreman on the, on the factory floor, could not expect that his child, her child, was going to have that same life available to him or her. And so they started pushing. They started thinking, oh, I've got to, I've got to do it, you know, I've got to do a little bit more. I have to, I have to do a little bit extra. Like, there are fewer slots available, and I'm going to have to push harder for, for my kid. So with that came two things. Well, with that came um, the academic standards moving into lower grades. So Parents who had their kids in high school began to panic more and say, hey, we should have more AP classes. We should have more access to this. We should have that. And so the high school responded by bringing those things, but then the teachers were saying, wait a minute, these kids aren't prepared. So they started looking to the middle school teachers saying, you've got to get these kids prepared. If we're going to put them into AP calculus, you can't be messing around with math in middle school. They've got to be doing better. And then the middle school teachers said, so this happened sort of slowly over decades, right? And the middle school teachers put it down on the elementary. And that is why the kindergarten curriculum today, at least in California, but I, I know that this is a nationwide trend, the kindergarten curriculum today is closer to the first grade curriculum of 40 years ago than it is to the kindergarten curriculum of 40 years ago. So basically... Kindergarten, uh, first grade has been moved down into kindergarten. And that so kids are not going to preschool. They're kind of looped once they reach kindergarten. Yeah, so kids, for kids not going to preschool, they, that's a problem. That's a big problem. And, 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 you know, so parents scramble. And so, so then the preschools respond, right? So that now we have a lot more academic preschools as opposed to just play-based preschools. And 
The other correlating, so, so that's one of the changes and shifts. One of the other shifts alongside that is that with moving into the workforce, A, and with technology making us available to our jobs 24-7, B, parents are working harder and longer hours than they were before, and they are, um, their kids are therefore in childcare longer. They are in structured programs more. So you have two, two ideas side by side. One is I've got to push my kids. I've got to make sure that they're going to get into the high math track when they get into middle school. So I've got to be giving them all this math enrichment while they're in elementary school. So I've got to have them at a preschool that is going to teach them, you know, their, their math facts and their numbers so that they can, can really thrive and be off and running when they do it. And so kids are just spending more time um, doing that kind of learning. All right, so that was one, this, this Nation at Risk report was one big motivator for the shifts that we see. Interestingly, something that you would not have expected to have an influence at all, in the mid-'80s, there was a Stranger Danger uh, film. It was a Sunday night special after the Super Bowl about, you know, a kid getting picked up off the street and parents not being able to find their kid. This was the start of the play date. Right? Like you and I, mm-hmm. we never had a play date. Right? We went out, I always we, we, wondered we, how that started. Isn't this fascinating? I mean, we yeah. were sent out on the street, right? Go play. Unless you're bleeding, I don't want to see you until dinner. Today's kids huh. are now, so you've got the combination of two things. Kids are more likely to be in child care, more likely to be in after-school programs because their parents are working. Two, when parents are making the effort to get their kids together, they want them in the house or in the yard where they can monitor them. So kids aren't just like getting on their bikes or and riding all over town or like, I mean, I lived, I, I backed up on against the creek. We spent half our life in that creek. Um, no, you know, kids aren't doing that anymore because even though nobody's going to come down to the kids, to the creek to kidnap your kid, this whole culture of I have to be monitoring my kid um, just permeated everything. And then the two ideas combined such that it wasn't enough to have parents, um, it wasn't enough to have a play date in your house. And my version of a play date would be like, okay, go play in the backyard, don't come in unless there's blood. Parents now feel that they have to have an enriching, meaningful play date where they are, uh, you know, showing to the other parents that, you know, at my house, you come and you do the science experiment or you, you know, you play this fun new math game. I was looking at a Facebook post once and a mother had posted and she's like, help, I want to do an under the scene, uh, under the sea themed play date for my four-year-old. I need some ideas. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my there's so much goodness. pressure on these parents. So much pressure. 
but then we're doing it to ourselves, right? I mean, I was a kid in the, I was a teenager in the 80s. So that's my generation now that's, you know, that kind of started this, I guess. Uh, yeah, just, just the beginning of it, the very, very yeah. beginning of it. Yeah. Yeah, and so now now hearing like what you have to say, that that's crazy. Like we are putting we're putting so much pressure on ourselves to impress everyone else in the world. Not not our kids. The kids just want to play. We are. We are absolutely. And it's you know, and then parents will say, I'm not telling my kid they have to get the best grade. I'm not. But my kid is saying, but I have, I have, you know, I have to get to the kids. My, my kid is so anxious about it. And I'm like, yes, I hear you, that you're not putting that pressure on. And I want you to know that this is the soup. This is the societal soup that your kids are swimming around in. And, you know, you may not be saying it directly to them, but our kids are great um, data gatherers but they are poor interpreters and they don't know when their data is incomplete. So, you know, when you're having, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, so there are a lot of conversations about, you know, oh, I met this woman today. I, I was talking to her. She's really smart. She's got an MBA from Stanford, da, 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 and this is what happened, right? Like that, those references to a person's degree and to what level, of, you know, what, college they went to, it's peppered throughout everything that we're doing. And so even though we're not looking our child in the eye and saying, I expect you to get the very best grades you can be getting, or you should be getting better grades than you're getting, even though we're who are doing that, but even though a lot of parents look at, tell me that they aren't, they're not cognizant and mindful of the way that they are languaging things around their kids. And, right, and right. the neighbor and the teacher and um, the kids next door and the kids exactly. who them in class. Yeah. yeah. And so what is your role, Elizabeth? Like what, how do you, um, like what, what do you do with these students and these children and their parents to, um, navigate this issue because I mean, obviously, this is—it's affecting family life as well. How do you handle that? So, I, as a parenting coach, I'm really working with the parents and not the students. And you know, what I'm helping parents do is one of the biggest things that I help parents do is to take the long view. And by that, I mean, so parents are also poor data interpreters. You know, they, they look at one data point, um, like, oh, my gosh, my gosh, I taught seventh grade. And so, you know, parents coming and going like, oh, my kid got a C on his essay. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. And I'd be like, yeah, it's September. He got a C on his essay. I bet by June he'll be getting A. Like, this is not, this is not the sky is falling. This is not a reason for concern. This, is, this isn't the problem. So helping parents not see the one C as, oh, my gosh, now he's not going to get into Harvard. But seeing one C as like, yep, he's got some learning to do. Like, I'm a tough grader, but he'll figure it out, and I'm here to help him. So helping them see, I don't, you know, my child does not 
first of all, my child's development and growth is not going to be a linear slope from infancy to college admissions. My child's, every child learns in their own way and at their own pace. And they're going to they're gonna go high and low and forward and backwards and all around. And thank goodness we live in the United States of America because there is no more forgiving school system anywhere. There are so many opportunities in this country to fail and then to come back and tackle things from a different direction, right? You can go to summer school. You can get your GED. You can go to community college. You can um, take a year off and do something meaningful and reapply as if you were a whole new person practically. So it's a very... Well, that's what failure is, right? Failure is not you're a loser and now go hide in a hole. Failure is now I need, now I have opportunities to do something different or make this better. Yeah, exactly. So that's, a, that's another big part of my parents understand that you want your kid to fail early and fail often. And parents are, look at me, horrified when I say that to them. But I say, look, the more your kid fails, the more they learn, the more they figure out. And the, if they do it in seventh grade and they do a lot of failing in seventh and eighth grade, or better yet, third or fourth grade, then they get more time to figure out what kind of learner they are, to become critical thinkers and problem solvers, to understand that they are in process, to develop a growth mindset and to be able to go like, okay, well, I haven't mastered this yet, but I'm still working on it, and next time I'm going to try something different. And let's, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be that I give the impression that I want little kids to, to just experience failure and to not experience any successes. But we're not letting them experience any failure. And so then when they have even a small failure as they get older, um, it's a, a mountain, not a molehole. And to some degree, that's of our making because we haven't given them the chances to take ownership of their own lives, of their own learning, because we are micromanaging everything and we are being their executive functioning brains. I agree so. 100%. I remember when my kids started playing soccer, they were, the twins were four, and they didn't keep score. And I was like, but you do realize that the kids know that, you know, the, the other team put in more balls, like put the ball in the net on their end, way more than we did. And then when my younger one started hockey, was the same thing. And I'm like, we're not teaching them anything. We are just covering everything up for them, right? And my son was a goalie, and he, he knew. Like, he knew that he let, you know, six goals in when the other team only let in three, Right, and he would come out of the dressing room, you know, sad and and disappointed in himself because he didn't do as well. But he knew that, he, you know, even though the scoreboard wasn't lit up and and it filled in, he knew that he didn't do as well as the other team. But that made him want to do better the next time around. Yes, and you know, I think it's so interesting because we have at the other end of 
the conversation we have. Um, I, I recently had a, a, an 11 year old spend the weekend with me and she was showing me there's a, a reality show called Dance with Moms. And I was horrified by this show because at the other end of things, it was all about the competition and all about the winning. And there wasn't any sense of um, growth, being in process, working on stuff, learning, um, doing, you know. So that's, that's in line with that we've got to push our kids. We've got to make them stand out. If they're going to get into a good school, if they're going to do this, then, you know, it, it's not enough. So it's, it's, it's both things. And partly, partly the, the pendulum is swinging, swinging back the other direction again. And, you know, as with so many things, if we can kind of take a middle view and say, uh, yeah, you made fewer goals than the other person did. That's okay. That's not the end of the world. What are, you know, we're in process. We don't win them all. So we don't have to get tight and tense and um, come down heavy on our kids if they're not winning. But we just want to help them find strategies for doing better next time and, and then identifying, you know, a way to move forward. It's taking that balanced approach that uh, we don't seem to have very much of. Right, right, exactly. And and a lot of times, and you probably know, are finding it this way, our, our kids are looking up to us as parents to help them through, you know, whatever failure they're going through. And the parents don't know how to do that because the parents are thriving for, you know, better than perfect. They're like, well, now I don't know what to do, right? You, you've done this wrong or this didn't work out the way that we should have made it work out. Now I don't know what to do, right? So they're at a loss. Is that when they come to you like that? And then how do you manage to sort of fill in the gaps for them? For parents? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, for one, we just kind of go, we go through a little bit of the history and we go through sort of the big picture. And, you know, and one of the things that I really talk to parents about is, is their values. And, you know, how are you modeling adulthood? Like, are you modeling adulthood as something which kids are going to want to aspire to? I mean, when you and I were kids, we wanted to be adults. We wanted to be grown up. We wanted to get licenses. Today's kids are not wanting to get their driver's licenses. They're perfectly willing to have their parent drive them around. Because why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons is because we, they look at adulthood and adult responsibility and they think it's big, it's scary, it's, um, it's you know, my parents are tired, they're stressed, they're unhappy, oh, and yeah. I, I love my life. I love what I get to do. I love my job. I have reasonable boundaries and am able to say to my boss, um, you know, I'm putting my phone down between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. And I've got to, you know, at around 9.30, I'll check in, but I'm not, I'm not taking calls. I'll be back on the job at, you know, 8.30 tomorrow morning. We aren't good at boundaries. We aren't good at... Um, Say that, and we're not good at the boundaries. You know, we 
the other thing I help parents do is to say, you know, okay, I'm hearing you say that your child loves hockey more than anything and lives for hockey. That's great. But that comes at a cost. The cost, the cost is they can't also be in Boy Scouts and be getting extra math tutoring and be playing the violin, right? Like you have to make a choice because there are only so many hours in the day and not only do kids need downtime, and they do, and they're not getting it, but we need downtime, and we're not getting it either. And it's making us tight and tense and reactionary, and we're not showing up as our best parenting self when that's the way that we're behaving. Yeah, yeah. I think that's been an issue for a long time for sure. I saw that a lot with the kids that my kids went to school with. They were always so busy. Yeah, so helping parents tap into their values and really kind of say, what, what do you want your child to experience as, adult, as adults? How do you want your children to, to be in the world? And, you know, if you only got two or three things to really teach them and to really focus on, what would be the two or three things that you would teach and focus on? And so, I, you know, I, get, I have them do some values work. I have them identify values, and I have them really say and then coordinate with each other, right, because values are personal, so it's, it's not at all uncommon for mom to have different, different priorities than dad. But usually there's some overlap, and usually there's some of, of what you can get from when you can have, you know, so there's usually two or three things that they can agree on. And when they do that, they now have their own filter for what's important and for where they're going to put their energy. And um, so I was working with a family recently who had a value of curiosity. And I love that because that's not one that comes up as often. And um, so I'm like, okay, if you have a value of curiosity – where is that showing up in how you're parenting your kids? And in what are you, you know, what are you letting them do? And a question had come up of like, my kid wants to quit. Is it okay for me to let my kid quit? I think it was Taekwondo. They wanted to quit. I'm like, okay, well, you've got a nine-year-old. So if you have a value of curiosity, what does quitting Taekwondo open up? Right? We're not talking like yeah. you been doing, you know, you're a high school senior and it's on your college apps and, you know, it's connected to something. We're talking you're nine years old. So they're like, well, I guess it gives them the chance to go try something else. I said, and is that consistent with your value of curiosity? Well, yeah, we want them to be interested in a lot of different things. I said, so, you know, is there some unwritten rule of how long you have to try something? before you get to go try something else. And I've always liked them to give it some try. I'm like, okay, so pick an amount of time. Say, say they have to do it for six weeks or ten weeks. But then if they want to quit, of course, you value curiosity. That means that you want to give them the space and the opportunity to try a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah that's and what so, we did with our kids too. Yeah. 
And I'm not saying that 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 has to be the rule, because for some other parent, there may be some other priority. But I'm saying that when you identify your priority and you're clear in your values and then you use that as a filter for all your parenting decisions, you become more confident that you're making the right decision. Because it doesn't have to be right in terms of everybody else. You know in your heart it's right for your family and what you have identified as being important to you. So then right, you I love have that. an internal check rather than, you know, being pushed around by the vicissitudes of the opinions that you hear when you're standing on the soccer field. Right, yeah. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> After COVID, um, we all know that, you know, mental health has taken a big leap and there's many, many, many people, you know, children, teenagers, adults, elderly, dealing with mental health issues. How Have you dealt with any families now that are dealing with teenagers that um, they don't want to deal with the world, they don't want to deal with life right now? Yeah, and one of the forms that that comes up in is um, what we call school refusal. So um, the problem of kids... And, you know, this is not like a three-year-old who you could pick up and put into the car seat, right? We're talking uh, middle school, high school kids who are uh, digging in their heels and looking at their parents and saying, you can't make me go to school. And, indeed, I mean, short of beating your child, I don't know how you're going to get a child of that size physically to get in the car and to get to, get to school with any kind of physical force, right, or threat. So, right, and then the reality is, even if you did get them to school, nothing, nothing's going to keep them there. I mean, they always have a way out. I mean, it, essentially, they can leave. I mean, a police officer, if they, if they physically walk out of school, a police officer can come and pick them up um, and, and can escort them back to school or can, you know, can take them to juvenile hall um, if they're a little bit older. But, again, we don't just want kids physically in school. We want them mentally and emotionally in school, too. And so school refusal is a, is a big, big deal. Yeah, and it's really hard because it's not, it's not an easy one-off solve um, because you really, you really have to get creative about understanding what's the block for the child, like what's the, what's the, the biggest issue, and you, you have to just kind of keep applying some, some low-level steady pressure. So there's a lot of bargaining that goes on, like, you know, um, if you go to school today, you can, have your, you can have your phone when you get home. Otherwise, I have your phone for the next 24 hours. Or, um, you know, we're just going to just drive to the school parking lot. If you, if you don't get out of the school parking lot, if you don't get out at school, you don't have to get out but we're going to at least drive to the school parking lot because you have to keep a child kind of in some kind of forward motion and towards the goal of getting them back into school. And, you know, what we're looking for is to find, to make them a little bit uncomfortable in the demands that we're making, but not so uncomfortable that 
that they shut down even more. It's tricky. Yeah. And every kid is going to be different. Yeah. They are avoiding school for different reasons, and they're going to be motivated by different things, and they're going to be um, threatened by different things. Right. Wow. So you don't deal with the actual students, like the kids of these families. You're talking, you talk mainly with the parents. 95% of the time I'm talking to the parents. Right. Um, And sometimes you find that... Go ahead. Yeah, so do you find that the parents are... um, aware that they are putting this pressure on themselves and on the kids? Uh, vaguely. They're aware. They just, they, they really, they kind of like understand the, the, the environment they're in, but they don't see how to do anything different. And they're afraid of being, you know, they're afraid of, of missing something and being irresponsible. So like going back to the activity things, I was talking to a mom of a kid who, uh, a third grader and a second grader who were taking year-round soccer. I was like, oh, my gosh, your kids must love soccer. She's like, well, I'm not sure they absolutely love it, but they like it. I'm like, well, why would you have them do something all year, something that they don't absolutely love? And she's like, well, because in this town, if you haven't been on the traveling soccer team when you're in elementary school, there is no way that you're going to make the high school soccer team. And, oh my you know, I played, I played sports in high school, and it was, it was so good for me, and it was such a supportive part of, of my being in high school, and I just loved my, being on the team, and, you know, it was just, it was really great, and I, I want that for my kids. And I was like, okay, I hear, you, I hear this is coming from a really good place. I hear that you want to make sure that your kids have access to something which was valuable and uplifting and supportive to you. I said, but you're looking at a lot of years of having them do something that they don't really love to do. I said, that's an enormous risk. What if you've made them do soccer all this this time and then – you know, they refuse to try out for the soccer team. And even if you, quote, unquote, make them try out, well, you know they can sabotage that. Um, I think, you know, you're going to have hurt your relationship with your kids. You're not going to have set them up for what it is. And in the meantime, you're putting a ton of stress in your family, driving here and there and hither and yon. And she's like, yeah, I know, but, but, I don't want them to, to to look back at me and to say, well, why didn't you put us, you know, why didn't you put us on the soccer, on the traveling team? We were good enough. We could have been on the traveling team. And, you know, that's, again, that's where I like, I want parents to stand in their clarity and their parenting power of being able to save their kids both in the moment. But my friend's on the team. I want to be on the team. Why can't I be on the team? Please. And when, you know, when, when you're told five years later that you did it wrong. <laughs> um, in both those moments, I want a parent to be able to say, um, 
that was not a good, going to be a good choice for our family, right? We made different choices, and we feel good about what you got from those choices. Right. Yeah. Right. Because well, it's been said that no matter who your parent is, every child today will need therapy. I mean, I, I, right? I, I, mean, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in therapy. I, I, I think that that was probably true for our parents' generation as well. They probably also needed therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Right? Because I, I think that working on your mental health, work doing, doing personal growth work, and it doesn't have to be as a therapist, right? That's not the only, it's not the only avenue towards um, working on yourself. But it's part of growing up and being an adult, figuring out that, like, oh, like, somewhere in there, and I tell parents this all the time, you cannot expect to get it right 100% of the time. You are you, you have only experienced being you and being in your body and living your life, and you can only make guesses about what your child is experiencing and what's important to them and, you know, what's going on in their body. You can't know it. And so you're going to make one choice. Let's say, for instance, that, you know, let's say that a parent has a value of um, diligence and follow through. And so for that reason, they decide you committed to being on the soccer team, so you're going to stay, you're going to stay, um, you're going to meet your commitment. You're going, to, you're going to follow all the way through, maybe to the end of the school year, maybe to the end of the semester. And maybe that does help the child learn about commitment to follow through, but maybe the child is really miserable. And, but they don't communicate it to their parents. Some kids communicate everything. Some kids don't. Some kids internalize. And, yeah. you know, how if I have a kid who internalizes, I might realize that my kid isn't 100% happy with them, but I might think, well, I can live with that level of unhappiness because I want to teach this value of commitment and follow through. If you have three kids and you're following the same policy, it might be perfectly fine for two of them. Like, yeah, they're not super happy, but it doesn't lodge in them in the same way. It doesn't feel like a failure, like a you don't get me. And with a third kid, maybe it does. How are we supposed to know that? Right. Which makes parenting that much harder because now you've got, you know, your system is working for maybe two of your kids, but now you've got this other kid that you need to teach the same things. You want them to be, to know the same things when they become adults, but now you have to learn how to sort of split yourself and find another way of teaching that one. Yeah, and that's hard, but that I think that has existed that has existed all along. I think the the fact of the matter is, is that we just gave it less thought. And we didn't feel as personally uh responsible, right? Like if we we grew up and our parent, you know, our 20-year-old or our 25-year-old turned around and said, "Why did you do this? You should have done that." We would have said, "Well, you know, we didn't we made a decision we could make at the time." Like this is not <laughs> We didn't absorb the guilt for it. Like we didn't go like, oh, I should have been clairvoyant. 
Right, exactly. And and at the same time, like I think it's it's you know the right thing to not judge our parents on how they parented us because they did the best they could do with what they knew, right? I mean, that's how I look at my parents. I don't hold anything against them that, you know, they should have done this or they should have done that. I mean, they did what they knew they could do, right? Today, our parents have so many more resources than they had. You know, if if we don't know what to do, there's someone that can help us figure it out. They didn't really have that, or at least it wasn't, you know, accepted that they go elsewhere to find, you know, parenting strategies. Well, okay, that's true. And at the same time, I don't want moms who are in the trenches to hear what you just said and and just say, see, it's all on me. I should be figuring this out. And I'm trying my best to figure it out because I want to remind you that on the other end of things, there's such a glut of information and advice that it's super hard to to sort through and well, and true. to know. Yeah. Right. Right. But if you are, so, are if you're aligned with your values, Elizabeth, this is this is kind of where you were going with your values. If you're aligned with your values and you're getting advice from someone else, if they don't align, then you, it's obviously advice that you're not going to take. If if you're aligned with your values, you have a much better chance of having a filter which is, you know, yes, which you're going to be confident about and which you're going to be able to focus on. And, you know, at the end of the day, again, you might you might get it wrong. Okay, and I'll just give a quick example here. My younger stepson um, was prone to anxiety, and when he was about four, the psychologist said, look, you need to have a very set schedule for him. Like he needs to know exactly what's happening between dinner and bedtime. And my husband's sitting in the meeting, and he says, "I'm not going to do that to my son." <laughs> it's like, no, it's not something you're doing to your son. It's something you're doing for your son, right? So that's that classic example of. My husband's standing in his body thinking, what would be good for me? What would I like? Would I like a strict schedule every night? No, to him, that was like putting him in a box and, you know, locking it up and throwing away the key. So helping him to understand, in order to feel safe, your son is going to really appreciate having a posted schedule and following that schedule and knowing what to do. And that's what it feels like to be in his body. But this is pretty subtle stuff. And in that case, you know, because they were doing court custody stuff, a psychologist came from the outside and observed the family. But that's not something you would expect every parent to do or to get. And so, you know, are we going to, are we going to hold that parent responsible for not seeing that, for not understanding that about their child? That's such yeah, that's a high standard. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. yeah, that's crazy making. So, wow. you know, if in general... You know, we could sit here and talk all day, right? <laughs> we could. We could. I imagine it's time to wrap up soon. 
you know, this is this is one of the a to- this is a topic that I love getting into because I mean, let's face it, every single person sees parenting differently, right? In the end, I mean, for me, in the end, what I my biggest um strive for my kids was to become adults that are responsible have you know are good wholesome people but the number one thing is happy right i want my kids to be happy and i i don't like i don't know if i've succeeded i mean i have two adult children now they're young adults so you know i don't think that they can feel happy right now but in the end like i wait 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 you have to stop. Well, I mean, I, okay, so I don't say that they don't know how to be happy. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, you know, like an overall happy. Because right now at their age, you know, if this bothers them, it wrecks their day, right? If this bothers them, it ruins them. But overall, I think happy comes when you understand what happy is. And I, now this is my own personal view. I think you need more life experience to know what that happy is. And I don't mean that my kids are not happy because they're happy. You know, they're they're fine. They're they ha- they both enjoy their jobs. They're they're both you know happy. But I I just don't think that they're the happy that I was aiming for. Maybe that's a better explanation. Um, but I I do believe that that's because of their age. Because their age, like their friends are all you know, some are some are going to school, some are not, and. They kind of feel a little mixed up still, sort of as a teenager, right? I don't mean that that they're not happy. I should have explained that a little bit better, but that's my that was my goal was that they would be happy, you know, as adults. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think that they're the happy that I meant for, but that doesn't mean that they're not happy. Did I clarify that the right way? I think I understand. I know I jambled on yeah. there forever, but. Like, I think that they're happy. I just don't think that they're the happy that I was aiming for. And, but that doesn't mean that they won't get there. Well, and they certainly, I mean, yeah, they need the advantage of being, being old women is that, that there is something to, to being wiser and having more perspective and having a greater understanding. And, you know, because we've experienced more ups and downs, we're not we're not experiencing either the up or the down as the end all and the be all, and we've more we are you know we're able to to keep other things kind of going steady even if you know our job or our something else is going up and down. And it is true that young people have a much harder time holding that perspective. Um, right, and I and I guess that's what I meant. Yeah. You know, like my son, he has this car, and he was um, hit. It wasn't a lot of damage, but it was damaged. And when he came home, like, honestly, you would have thought he lost his best friend. He was so upset. And he said, you know, all I said to him was, are you okay? And he said, I had the worst day ever. And I was like, okay, so what happened? And he said, you know, that his car was hit. And I'm like, you know, it could have been worse. And he said, Mom, my car is my baby. And I was and I didn't mean to laugh, but I did kind of yeah. giggle. You know, and I and I said and at the time I said, you know, I, I get it. Nobody wants their car damaged, right? Especially it's one of those pride vehicles where he puts a lot of work into it and stuff. But I said it could have been worse. You could have you could have been killed, 
And then what? The car's worth nothing to nobody, right? And then, you know, gradually I, you know, managed to get through to him and make him understand that it could have been much worse and, you know, it can be fixed. But that's kind of how I, I was like, you know, that's, you know, life teaches us that, right? Because I'm sure I would have been the same at his age, right? Thinking, oh, my God, you broke my car, right? Yeah. But, yeah. So I, I just think that, you know, at, like you said, it's the wiser, right? We get wiser as we get older. And I guess I want them to have the, you know, the happy and the wise that I have in my 50s when they're in their 20s. And the reality <laughs> is that's, that's impossible, right? I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't want them to go through any more pain. I guess that's what it comes down to, right? That is what it comes down to. And, and that's actually, that is a, um, that is one of the, I see, say one of the struggles of modern parenting is that, I'm, I'm dealing, just this morning I had a call with a couple whose son is a freshman in college. And I kept saying to him, you have to let him fail. Oh, but da 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 I'm like, look. I said, I wish you would let him fail in seventh grade, but you didn't. And I wish you would let him fail first semester of ninth grade, but you didn't. But right now you're still paying his bills. You still have some connection to him, so let's let him fail where you're still are, have a bona fide role and part of his life and not when he goes yeah. to his first job and you really have no, no control whatsoever. It's like, you yeah. know, but it's painful. I'm like, so, Nobody wants you know, to see their kids in pain, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I get know? it. I totally get it. Yeah, I get it. You know, I, I really want to sit and talk forever, but we are going to run out of time here. So if you could give one piece of advice to parents today, um, and at any, at any age, I mean, what is one thing that you would tell parents today um, to keep their bond with their kids? Listen more than you talk. Yeah, that's great advice. That even when they're not talking, <clears throat> right? They say a lot with their actions. I love that. That's that's perfect. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. You're welcome. It was a great conversation. And I think we will do this again someday. Because <clears throat> I feel like this is a topic we can talk about um, over and over again and come up with something different. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. One just has to pick up a magazine or turn on a television to see that we, as women, are bombarded daily with medium images of female physical perfection, leaving us with the most unrealistic of expectations as to how we should look. No wonder female body confidence is falling while incidents of eating disorders are on the rise. What's most alarming is the way this affects young girls. A reduced sense of self-worth can create anxiety, stress, even depression, causing relationship issues while potentially impairing academic and job performance. Confidence in Bloom is a celebration of self-love, a confirmation that you're an amazing, desirable, brilliant, gorgeous, talented woman, even though you may not look like a screen star or a supermodel. The truth is they don't even look like that. We offer unconditional love to our partners, our children, our extended family, even our pets. It's high time we got out of our own way and learned to unconditionally love ourselves. 
Chic definitely does come in every shape. So if you want something to believe, start with yourself. If you'd like to be a guest here on Confidence in Bloom and chat with me, contact me through Instagram at infobloomstyling or by email at tina at infobloomstyling.com or through the Divas That Care website. Thanks for listening. This show was brought to you by Divas That Care. Connect with us on Facebook, on Instagram, and of course on divasthatcare.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss a thing.